Dear listeners, welcome to Reading Continues at Home, a podcast curated by Malou Solfjeld and produced by Das Weiße Haus. It is hard to believe, but we are already broadcasting episode 7, which is entitled Life is Short, Art is Long, Learning How to Listen. Good morning. The selected texts are given voice to by a London-based artist Saskia Fischer, Hugo Hopping, a Copenhagen-based artist from Los Angeles, who additionally serves as head of the Board of Advisors at 68 Art Institute, and myself. As voiceover for the intro and outro, this might be a good opportunity to briefly introduce myself. My name is Katja Stecher. I work as program coordinator for Studio Das Weiße Haus since 2015. And I'm very glad to work on this podcast together with Malou and my colleague NR. Thank you for tuning in and uh, enjoy listening. Welcome back to Reading Continues at Home, episode 7. My name is Malou and today I'm reading from Copenhagen. That means I am finally back home in my apartment. And this is after having uh, been away for, I think, approximately six weeks in Vienna and then six weeks um, in different countryside isolation houses around Denmark. Uh, I, I now returned to my own flat in Copenhagen, which feels really good. And it also feels very strange, but... I think that just um, this moving around and kind of being elsewhere um, while the whole lockdown crisis was going on um, has it's been a bit of it's been quite stressful I think and now um, when I'm finally here I can feel a certain relief um, entering my body filling my body. So that is really nice. And I'm sitting here looking out the window, looking at my plant in the window that has grown really tall while I was away. And in front of my garden, there is like a space, like the, like there's a public area where people cross. And it's kind of nice to see that it's still the same rhythm in street life. You know, there's the bird man who come and feed the birds. Um, like it's a bit disgusting maybe, but every day he comes and like spread out this bird food. And uh, yeah, I really um, wonder what's his story you know because sometimes if the birds don't come if they don't show up he's like standing there waiting for them and he's like trying to communicate with them they're sitting on, on like the rooftop and he's looking at them and he's like pointing to the food and he's like why don't you want to eat my my food today and then maybe they're lazy or maybe it's raining or I don't know but it's just I really always wondered what's going on inside his head and yeah he's still here and that's that's really nice and then later on in the day, um, Ronnie will come by, who is like this local guy that everyone knows in Vestabro. You can hear he comes because you can hear the music from his boom blaster or whatever he carries. So he's going to the grocery store to pick up some beers, I think. And 
Um, that's also like a daily ritual for him. And then usually, I mean, I could keep going if I should tell you all the rhythms of Mr. Bo, but one thing that is missing is that usually in the evening around seven o'clock, there will be like a humming kind of sound from lots of people um, because I live next to a concert hall. So around seven o'clock, they will start queuing up in front of this concert hall. It happens almost every night and it can be teenagers. It can be like people in their fifties or it can be anyone uh, going to concerts here. It's like not classical music, it's pop music, rock music and so on. So there will always be a long queue and it's always quite cozy to like sense the vibe of the different audiences. And obviously now this is not um, not possible because the concert hall is closed, even though the rest of society seems to open up more and more. Um, there's still places, you know, that can't open. And uh, that's, of course, really sad. And I'm looking forward to having them back. And I'm looking forward for the musicians to be able to play again and to make money to survive again. Okay, I think I will uh, stop for now by telling uh, small stories from my neighborhood. I can always do that. Uh, the episode today is called I don't I haven't made a title yet I think we call it um, life is short art is long good morning because life is short um, art is long is a quote from one of the texts you'll hear later and good morning is is also a quote from one of the texts but it's it's also like I had the feeling when I listened to all these beautiful voices who sent me their recordings that we're kind of heading almost towards a more like how do you say enlightening or like it's it's kind of an awakening to listen to these three uh, texts being read today i feel like it's an awakening into new perspectives we're not doing anything like it's not religious or anything in that direction but it's more like it's really broadening up your horizon I think, at least mine. That was my impression. So I hope you feel the same. So let me just introduce um, the first reader of today is Saskia. And Saskia reached out to me some weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I think, on Instagram, where she said that she was listening to the podcast of Das Weiße House. And finally, she was like, suddenly she was like oh I recognize that voice and where do I know it from and then it was actually uh, from a reading group that we had attended together which was uh, super nice that uh, that she kind of recognized me that and then she found me on Instagram and yeah Saskia it was you know it made me so happy to read your message that day and then we had a Skype together and um, by the sea I brought her to the rocks and it was really beautiful because um, we shared so many stories. It was very personal and also like from our profession professional lives in the art world. And I really enjoyed that. And um, now she's going to read for us. So enjoy. Hi, I'm Saskia and today I'm reading from London. The text I wanted to share with you is from the book To Become Two 
Propositions for Feminist Collective Practice by Alex Martinez Rowe, published in 2018. In her book, um, Alex Martinez Rowe introduces her readers to 20 different propositions of collective practice, of which I would like to read you an excerpt of proposition number 12 The Practice of Listening, developed by Lucia Farinati. It is through a discussion of Adriana Cavarero's philosophy of vocal expression that curator Lucia Farinati and I discovered our meeting point. Adriana's philosophy of vocal expression involves an analysis of the way in which, throughout the history of Western philosophy, the singularity of the voice of the speaker has been separated from the universal world rather than accounting for the way each speaker in each utterance contributes to and inflects the meaning of that word. Adriana says that if we are to acknowledge the difference of each speaker in each utterance as an integral aspect of language, then we must also take the role of the listener into account. The speaker's difference can only ever be perceived by another and in relation to another, and it is only through full acknowledgement of the interconnection of the reciprocal acts of speaking and listening that we can come to relational, decentered understanding of the self. This is vital if we are to move beyond the exclusions of difference in Western culture, which have relied, relied on a universal and individualistic and solipsistic model of the subject. Thus, the development of feminist, feminist listening techniques was as important to the project of starting from oneself as speaking, because it is only that reciprocal space of co-appearance in the historical women's group that the knowledge and ideas that came from embodied experience were validated and heard as political. As Lucia paraphrased Adriana, this entailed a shift from speech politics to voice politics. Lucia's focus on sound and listening throughout her practice, and it was particularly her project of organizing collective readings of Carla Lanzi's Autoritrato, that became the departure point for developing a proposition for feminist collective practice together. In that project, the different voices who participated foregrounded the specificity of the voices in the book. Lucia focuses on Lanzi's term resonance to describe the reciprocity of speaking and listening that is so fundamental to a politics of difference. So what we wanted to do was to devise ways of exercising and listening to this resonance of voices so as to emphasize embodiment and relationality in the fundamental practices of communication which are so crucial to every collective feminist project. Listening as an active practice is one that can also open us up to our relational co-becoming with non-humans in our environment. The false dichotomy of nature and culture is ingrained in the universalist idea of the language that have historically in the, in the West excluded the uniqueness of the speaker and the listener and the importance of their relation. What has been excluded is the body, the voice, the vocal cords, the ears, the brain and the organs that have constructed and continually reconstruct and inflect our language. 
And this exclusion of the body, and more broadly, nature from our concept of language, is what has caused our destructive relationship with our environment. Excluding the feminine from culture has both justified and caused the treatment of women as objects, and similarly, the definition of culture against nature has justified and caused the exploitation of natural resources. It is with this conceptual habit of isolating subject from object, ignoring their relationality, for example, that human culture is part of large ecologies, not separate from them, that violence and destruction operate. In this way, feminist and environmental activism are one project, since the causes of the violence they seek to redress are ultimately entangled. The practice of active listening opens up the possibility for understanding our experiences and responding to them in ways that challenge the self-other dichotomy. Listening to our surroundings and to the uniqueness of each voice makes it possible to resist categorizing what we hear, rather than looking for sameness or identity. As the basis for sharing a political project, the practice of actively listening and opening ourselves up to each other makes it possible to discover and exult in our differences and to co-constitute ourselves a new through relation. Thank you so much for reading, Saskia. Thank you for choosing this beautiful text. What I especially took notice of was this, um, the way that the relational aspect of reading is, um, of listening, sorry, the, the interaction that happens between the speaker and the listener is um, decentering our understanding of the self, which is, I think it says, vital if we are to move beyond exclusions of of different others. And I think this is uh, super important also in relation to what I mentioned last week about racism and that this is really something we urgently need to fight against. Um, maybe it's a good starting point if we all train our ability to listen because come on I think we all know how to listen if we just decide to do it and and then of course it does take a bit of um of effort to learn how to really listen and maybe also how to respond like um like in responsibility like you know we have a shared responsibility and we also have the ability to respond Another thing I really like um, is the way that you say the human culture is part of larger ecologies, not separate from them, which I, of course, uh, strongly agree on. And this reminds me that actually I I re-listened to um, episode one, or it's called episode two, so Reading Circle 2, the first podcast we ever did, I listened to yesterday because for many reasons but I just want to apologize because back then I actually explained the virus inspired by Michel Serre's uh, parasite I explained it as a foreign guest inhabiting our bodies or something like that like a stranger coming into our lives and into our bodies and 
I mean, this is exactly what I criticized Mr. President for last week. Um, I don't think uh, we should talk about the virus as something something stranger or whatever. I mean, um, you know, it's all human created anyhow. It's it's because of the way we act. So this human culture as part of larger ecologies, not separate from them, makes a lot of sense. And on the breakdown of this nature culture, I think we should move on to the next text that is being read by Katja from Studio Das Weiße House. Katja is um, in charge of Studio Das Weiße House, uh, of the studio program and the residency program. And she is uh, the initiator of the podcast and uh, what is it called? Co-producer. She's like a partner in crime on this podcast. But I'm very happy you wanted to read for us again, Katja. And I think... No, I don't say anymore. I'll let you introduce and then I can follow up afterwards. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Katja. I'm reading from Vienna at about six o'clock in the morning. And the reason uh, to get up so early today was um, that I wanted to include these beautiful morning sounds into my reading, especially the lovely bird song, as it is very essential for the story I'm going to tell you now. In China, you know, the emperor is a Chinese and all those about him are Chinamen also. The story I'm going to tell you happened a great many years ago. So it is well to hear it now, before it is forgotten. The Emperor's Palace was the most beautiful in the world. It was built entirely of porcelain and very costly, but delicate and brittle, that whoever touched it was obliged to be careful. In the garden could be seen the most singular flowers with pretty silver bells tied to them, which tinkled so that everyone who passed could not help noticing the flowers. Indeed, everything in the emperor's garden was remarkable and it extended so far that even the gardener himself did not know where it ended. Those who traveled beyond its limits knew that there was a noble forest with lofty trees sloping down to the deep blue sea, and the great ships sailed under the shadow of its branches. In one of those trees lived a nightingale, who sang so beautifully that even the poor fishermen, who had so many other things to do, would stop and listen. Travelers from every country in the world came to the city of the Emperor, which they admired very much, as well as the palace and the gardens. But when they heard the nightingale, they all declared it to be the best of all. One day, the Emperor received a large packet on which was written the nightingale. Here is no doubt a new book about our celebrated bird, 
said the emperor, but instead of a book, it was a work of art contained in a casket, an artificial nightingale, made to look like a living one and covered all over with diamonds, rubies and sapphires. As soon as the artificial bird was wound up, it could sing like the real one and could move its tail up and down, which sparkled with silver and gold. Now they must sing together, said Court, and what a duet it will be. But they did not get on well, for the real nightingale sang in its own natural way, but the artificial bird sang only waltzes. That is not a fault, said the music master. It, w it is quite perfect to my taste. So then it had to sing alone and was as successful as the real bird. Besides, it was so much prettier to look at, for it sparkled like bracelets and breastpins. Three and thirty times did it sing the same tunes without being tired. <laughs> the people would gladly have heard it again, but the emperor said the living nightingale ought to sing something. But where was she? No one had noticed her when she flew out of the open window, back to her own green woods. What a strange conduct, said the emperor, when her flight had been discovered, and all the courtiers blamed her and said she was a very ungrateful creature. But we have the best bird after all, said one, and then they would have the bird sing again although it was the 34th time they had listened to the same piece, and even then they had not learned it, for it was rather difficult. And after this, the real nightingale was banished from the empire, and the artificial bird placed on a silk cushion close to the emperor's bed. One evening, when the artificial bird was singing its best, and the emperor lay in bed listening to it. Something inside the bird sounded weird. Then a spring cracked and the music stopped. The emperor immediately sprang out of bed and called for his physician. But what could he do? Then they sent for a watchmaker. And after a great deal of talking and examination, the bird was put into something like order but he said it must be used very carefully as the barrels were worn and it would be impossible to put in new ones without injuring the music. Now there was a great sorrow as the bird could only be allowed to play once a year and even that was dangerous for the works inside it. Five years passed and then a real grief came upon the land. The Chinese really were fond of the emperor and he now lay so ill that he was not expected to live. Cold and pale lay the emperor in his royal bed. The whole court thought he was dead and everyone ran away to pay homage to his successor. But the emperor was not yet dead although he lay wide and stiff on his gorgeous bed, 
with long velvet curtains and heavy gold tassels. A window stood open and the moon shone in upon the emperor and the artificial bird. The poor emperor, finding he could not scarcely breathe with a strange weight on his chest, opened his eyes and saw death sitting there. He had put on the emperor's golden crown and held in one hand his sword of state and in the other his beautiful banner. All around the bed and peeping through the long velvet curtains were a number of strange heads, some very ugly and others lovely and gentle looking. These were the emperor's good and bad deeds which stared him in the face. Now death sat at his heart. Suddenly there came through the open window the sound of sweet music. Outside, on the bow of a tree, sat the living nightingale. She had heard of the emperor's illness and was therefore come to sing to him of hope and trust. And as she sung, the shadows grew paler and paler. The blood in the emperor's veins flowed more rapidly and gave life to his weak limbs. And even death himself listened and said, Go on, little nightingale, go on. Then will you give me the beautiful golden sword and the rich banner? And will you give me the emperor's crown? said the bird. So death gave up each of these treasures for a song. And the nightingale continued her singing. Then death longed to go and see his garden and floated through the window in the form of a cold white mist. Thanks, thank you, heavenly little bird. I know you well. I banished you from my kingdom once, and yet you have charmed away the evil faces from my bed and banished death from my heart with your sweet song. How can I reward you? You already rewarded me, said the nightingale. I shall never forget that I drew tears from your eyes the very first time I sang to you. These are the jewels that rejoice a singer's heart, but now sleep and grow strong and well again. I will sing to you again. And as she sung, the emperor fell into a sweet sleep, and how mild and refreshing that slumber was. When he awoke, strengthened and restored, the sun shone brightly through the window. But not one of his servants had returned, they all believed he was dead. Only the nightingale still sat beside him and sang. You must always remain with me, said the emperor. You shall sing only when it pleases you, and I will break the artificial bird into a thousand pieces. No, don't do that replied the nightingale. The bird did very well, as long as it could. Keep it there still. I cannot live in the palace and build my nest. But let me come when I like. I will sit on a bow outside your window in the evening and sing to you. So that you may be happy and have thoughts full of joy. I will sing to you of those who are happy and those who suffer of the good and the evil, who 
were hidden around you. The little singing bird flies far from you and your court to the home of the fisherman and the peasant's cot. I love your heart better than your crown and yet something holy lingers round that also. I will come, I will sing to you, but you must promise me one thing. Everything, said the emperor, who, having dressed himself in his imperial robes, stood with the hand that held the heavy golden sword pressed to his heart. I only ask one thing, she replied, that no one know that you have a little bird who tells you everything. It will the best to conceal it. So saying, the nightingale flew away. The servants now came. Uh, the servants now came in to look after the dead emperor when there he stood. And to their astonishment said, Good morning. That was so beautiful. And good morning to you too. So, um, as you heard, Katja was reading for us very early in the morning. And uh, actually, I think the reason why we came to to talk about this text is because um, whenever we've been Skyping, and Katja has been sitting outside on her balcony, I've been kind of jealous on all the nice bird sounds in the background. And we don't usually Skype at 5 or 6 a.m. We usually do it in the evening. And once I remember she also um, called me while there were music uh, going on in her um, in her yard. Was it music or was it clapping? Were they singing? I can't remember catch it so long time ago. But anyways, I was so jealous of these bird sounds. Um, and it was weird because I was in the forest every day or I was at the countryside or by the sea and I also had a lot of birds singing around me. But it was somehow like there was something in the acoustics of catches birds that reminded me of something. And it's really strange because, I mean, I think we located the sound to be uh, the sound of city birds. So the acoustics of the of the courtyard between the buildings that was kind of making the sound resonate, vibrate in a different way. Uh, and now that I came back to Copenhagen, I can hear it, which is really nice. But also, I just listened to your reading again now, and it really, there's so many birds that remind me of Mallorca as well. But maybe that's also just because of the architecture at the building I was living in in Mallorca. There was also kind of a atrium uh, yard. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called in English. It was a bit designed like Alhambra. So that was a really good acoustics for the bird songs. Okay, but I'm uh, digressing. The the fairy tale of the nightingale um, is resembling the, the site-specific location that you are in, Katja, um, but also it's the it's the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen. So for me, it's uh, very much um, connected to this Danish home that I've got. And I think uh, 
it's always been a good reminder to read the nightingale whenever you tend to become a bit too materialistic maybe is the word and um yeah i once wrote a paper about it like when i was in school i think i was in business school but very young about this whole uh, society of overproduction and how whenever we um I mean, we just buy and buy and buy, and then we get uh, tired of it. We just throw it away and we buy something new. And that's, of course, not the way to do it now. We have to recycle and we have to upcycle and we have to preserve. My favorite uh, part of the story, I think, is that death is longing to go and see his garden. So he's floating out through the window in the form of a cold white mist. I mean, if you can sing, so beautiful that even death is longing to go and see his garden, then there must be really something to it. Okay, but Katja, I can't wait to be back in Vienna on your balcony. And we're going to drink lots of wine and smoke lots of cigarettes and just listen to all the birds. The next and final reading of today is by Hugo Hopping, who is an artist and, um, how do you say, organizer, you can say, of a really cool space exhibition platform. It's a research and art institute here in Copenhagen called 68. And I actually got in touch with Hugo some time ago when I was in Vienna because I was, uh, we were like planning this exhibition. I was curating about, you remember maybe if you heard like one of the first episodes I told about it, it's called New Homes for Horses, Cats and Canaries. And um, this specific focus on horses Uh, was something that brought my attention to Hugo's work because he has done really cool work with horses and statistics and yeah I hope that we can that we can one day realize it one way or another I'm looking so much forward to uh, work with you Hugo and uh, I think we're already doing it so thank you so much for collaborating and thank you uh, for reading I'm really excited to hear what you have for us today so everybody enjoy hello my name is Hugo Hopping I am an artist uh, reading to you today from Copenhagen Denmark for this hashtag reading continues at home uh, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Malou Soifeld uh, who uh, invited me to make the reading and um, and uh, I am going to be reading today with a little bit of uh, sound in the background because I find that it um, allows me to concentrate in the reading, but also so the room is not so um, empty and perhaps I get better acoustics. I hope, well, you'll be the judge of that. Uh, if you're curious to who's playing in the background, that's um, the voice of uh, Hope Sandoval uh, from the group uh, Massey Star and her record uh, called Seasons of Your Day, which came out around 2013, 2014. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. 
Um, I want to um, read today from a small little book published by Penguin Books, uh, Great Ideas series, uh, which um, I have had uh, with me and and read and uh, over the years. Uh, I have taught it in classes uh, in California and Denmark and and, uh, and, um, and in France uh, and it's been an important sort of uh, little book that I've always kind of come back to uh, for many reasons uh, mainly because it's a very interesting environmental portrait of how to explain the uses of one life uh, in this case uh, from a person that enjoy the highest of privileges from um, the Roman Repo uh, the Roman Empire and I um, I think it's just uh, has always been worth looking into and um, and it's also kind of like a prototype for a self-help book if you see it in a historical context I suppose um, the book has been translated by uh, Charles Desmond Nuttall Costa, and it's from a 1997 uh, translation. And it, and I really like it because um, people that translate Latin into English, they really, they, they really uh, uh, actually uh, kind of sort of create a whole genre in themselves. Uh, I don't know if they're conscious of it, but they, they definitely are. There's a sense of play in the way that that the um, cadences of the sentences uh, in sort of somehow um, the syntax plays out from from uh, Latin into English. I'm not a specialist on it. I've followed up a little bit as much as my Google skills have allowed me to do so. But um, it has been a super interesting uh, uh, artistic research over the years to get. To understand the um, Latin uh, literature and documents in translation. Um, okay, here it is um, on the shortness of life. Most human beings, Paulinius, complain about the meanness of nature because we are born for a brief span of life. And because this spell of time that has been given to us rushes by so swiftly and rapidly that with very few exceptions, life ceases for the rest of us just as just when we are getting ready for it. Nor is it just the man in the street and the unthinking mass of people who groan over this, as they see it, universal evil. The same feeling lies behind complaints from even distinguished men. Hence the dictum of the greatest of doctors, Hippocrates. Life is short, art is long. Hence, too, the grievance, most improper to a wise man, which Aristotle expressed when he was taking nature to task for indulging animals with such long existences that they can live through five or ten human lifetimes, while a far shorter life, uh, limit is set for men who are born to a great and extensive destiny. It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if it were all well invested.
But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realize that it has passed away before we knew it, it was passing. So it is, we are not giving a short life, but we make it short. And we're not ill-supplied, but wasteful of it. Just as when ample and princely wealth falls to a bad owner, it is squandered in a moment. But when wealth, however modest, if entrusted to a good custodian, increases with use, so our lifetime extends amply if you manage it properly. Why do we complain about nature? She has acted kindly. Life is long if you know how to use it. One man is gripped by insatiable greed, another by laborious dedication to useless tasks. One is soaked in wine, another sluggish with idleness. One man is worn out by political ambition, which is always at the mercy of the judgment of others. Another, though, hope of profit is driven headlong over all lands and seas by the greed of trading. Some are tormented by a passion for army life, always intent on inflicting dangers on others or anxious about the dangers to themselves. Some are worn out by the self-imposed servitude of thankless attendance on the great. Many are occupied by either pursuing other people's money or complaining about their own. Many pursue no fixed goal, but are tossed about in ever-changing designs by a fickleness, which is shifting and constant and never satisfied with itself. Some have no aims at all for the life's course, but death takes them unawares as they have yawned languidly. So much so that I cannot doubt the truth of that oracular remark of the greatest of poets. It is a small part of life we really live. Indeed, all the rest is not life, but merely time. I will stop there and hope this spikes your curiosity to read this fascinating little letter. I also... Uh, hope it gets you to uh, somehow ask a little bit about um, the question of what is the ecology of enclosures and what is a life uh, well-led, well-lived um, yeah, I think that's a that's a good question um you have a good night. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for reading, Hugo. That was really great. And thank you so much for sharing the music with us as well. This is a really nice uh, addition to the reading. And as professional as I know you always are, you credit the musicians as well, which I really uh, appreciate. But can you believe that this these words were written like more than 2,000 years ago and still today they seem so relevant. I just came across another quote from the book um, by Seneca and by, from the text or from the letter and it says the greatest obstacle to living is expectancy which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. The whole future lies in uncertainty live immediately and 
end of quote. And I think this is just, I mean, I should um, write that on my mirror or something or at my front door because uh, I should really get reminded this sentence every day. I totally live in expectancy of tomorrow. And it can be good in, in some ways because I get excited, I look forward to the future, but I really believe this yeah, living in the present um, and maybe also making the, the presence vibrate, as we've talked about, Hugo. Um, that That's probably um, a way to make a short life feel longer, I think. And it made me think about the um, Hito style free fall text we read last week about like what is there to fall towards. And I think that is the big question. How do we how do we prepare for the future while um living a good life in the present, I guess. And that's a big question. But Hugo also had some really good questions. What is the ecology of enclosures? I'm not even sure I know what that means. But I think this is something we need to discuss. And what is a life lived well was the other question. Definitely also something we should ask ourselves every day. Thank you for reading, Hugo. Okay, that was um, everything we prepared for you today. And I, th I hope that you liked it, uh, the readings. I really enjoyed them myself. Life is short, art is long, and life is also long if we know how to live it, I think was the message. And uh, who the fuck knows how to live a good life? I mean... It's not uh, a written recipe you can find anywhere. I think you just have to try it out in different ways as we as we move on. But I think that listening is a good place to start and a good uh, tool that we have inherent in us and that we should um, just practice. Practice listening, practice talking and having... Like practice communication and this is not only between humans but also communicate with uh, everything that surrounds us like the birds especially the nightingale and the plants and the bees and so on i wish you all a nice sunday and i'm looking forward to seeing you next week Ciao. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I forgot to say thanks to a few big people. Um, thank you to the Spicer House, Alexandra. Thanks again. And uh, thank you to Plugfrei. And thanks for reading and listening, everybody. But also a special thank you to all my lovely neighbors. Because if it wasn't for you, it wouldn't feel like coming home. So thank you so much for uh, giving me such a warm welcoming. I have, you know, the best neighbors in the world. So maybe that's also why I'm smiling now. And I will make you read next week. Ciao.
The Spicer House would like to thank our readers for their contributions. Many thanks to wonderful Malou Solfield for curating and organizing the readings and to Anna Didius Rodriguez for the technical production. Thank you for listening and join us again next Sunday at 2 p.m. when reading continues at home. <laughs>